All right. Hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Ariane Dominique. I'll just be doing a slight introduction for tonight. Um, again, Midtown Bookstore welcomes you. This is going to be a really exciting event. We're happy to have you here. Uh, I'm excited, and uh, it's going to be a really cool night. I have the pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, when he's here this evening, uh, Stephen Waldeman is a national best-selling author of Founding Faith and the co-founder of BeliefNet, the award-winning multi-faith website. He is now co-founder and president of Report for America, a national service program that places talented journalists into local newsrooms. His writings have also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek, National Review, Christianity Today, The Atlantic, First Things, The Washington Monthly, Monthly Slate, The New Republic, and others. And he currently lives in Brooklyn. We are here this evening to discuss his new book, Sacred Liberty, America's Long, Bloody, and Ongoing Struggle for Religious Freedom. In the book, Waldman offers a sweeping survey of how America built a unique model of religious freedom. This book has received nearly universal praise from countless outlets. I'm going to give two. Historian John Meacham says of sacred liberty, without freedom of conscience, the whole history of the nation and the world might be very different. We are lucky that Waldman has written this compelling study of the most essential breakthrough of modernity, the right to believe or not as one wishes. A great book and a monumental issue. Second, uh, Riza Aslan says that this is an important and fascinating book for all, full of riveting stories, provocative insights, inspiring heroes, and some serious warnings. The American model of religious freedom should be the envy of the world, but if we don't understand how we made this great invention, we could easily squander the achievement. And welcome the speaker here today, uh, Waldman. Thank you. I almost got lost downstairs, never to be found again in the, uh, it's amazing. And one of the books I found down there, just browsing around a few minutes ago, was a book called Uncle Sam or the Pope, which, uh, and this is a good, you can tell a little bit about, you can probably guess where the author comes down uh, based on the chapter titles, Mother of Harlots, Romanism Not Christian, 101 Proofs, the Antichrist, that would be the Pope, uh, Romanism an Enemy to Our Free Institutions, 101 Proofs. Um, I, I found this fascinating because one of the things that people are most surprised about, and I was somewhat surprised about in um, doing this book, was how pervasive anti-Catholicism was in American history. Uh, as they say in the tech world, anti-Catholicism was a feature, not a bug, of the American experiment. And that was just one of many, many things that I learned along the way in doing this, uh, in doing this project. Um, I'm going to basically kind of start with three assertions that are a little bit contradictory and then spend the rest of the time kind of talking about how we got from one to another. The assertions are first that despite what we were taught in uh, schools, we really haven't had real religious freedom in America for most of our history at least not of the sort that we have now and the sort that uh, we would find to be robust 
Secondly, we did eventually get or develop a very robust model of religious freedom. It took a long time. It took a lot of blood and uh, fighting and persecution and courage, but we did eventually get to a model of religious freedom, and it's important to understand what it is and what really makes a difference. And then thirdly, that model of religious freedom that was so hard fought is now in danger. It has come a long, long way, but it is uh, really in some peril now. So I'm gonna do a sort of very, very quick, breezy run through 400 years, um, and then uh, we will um, talk about kind of current, current day and what, uh, what this history really uh, tells us about the modern conflicts. Um, you being Pennsylvanians are probably already aware of uh, what happened with the Quakers in Massachusetts. Does everyone know the story of Mary Dyer? Yes. Most places I go don't, uh, don't say yes to that question. Uh, but I sort of think that every school child should know the story of Mary Dyer, uh, who was one of the Quakers who was uh, hanged by the Puritans from a tree in the Boston Commons for the crime of being a Quaker. And it wasn't just that she was sort of plucked uh, from a meeting house for worshiping against the rules. She was engaged in a kind of persistent act of civil disobedience. They gave her the chance to escape. She left for a while, came back. She left for a while, came, and they said, if you come back, we will execute you. She did. And they executed her and three Quaker colleagues from, uh, from the uh, trees in Boston Commons. And what's a perfect metaphor around this is that these were, this was done by the Puritans. So we're taught in school that the pilgrims and the Puritans came here for religious freedom, but it didn't take very long before they were turning around and executing Quakers for the crime of, of believing something different. And this is a pattern that we see over and over again in American history that unfortunately very often we have tended to define religious freedom as meaning religious freedom for my religion and not for others. And religious freedom for your own religion but not others is actually not religious freedom. That's something else. Um, and so that's what took hundreds of years to break out of. And uh, one of the most interesting periods of, of persecution and maybe one of the most consequential happened in Virginia in the 1760s. And the persecuted group was the Baptists in Virginia, and who we would now call evangelicals. And I make that point because I, you know, when we get to the modern section, there's interesting things going on with the evangelicals around religious freedom. There's no group probably in early American history that did more to advance religious freedom than evangelical Christians. And the, the uh, persecution of Baptists was astonishing. You would have, uh, you know, minister standing up on the, at the pulpit in Virginia and an Anglican minister comes in, takes the back end of a horsewhip, jams it in the minister's, in the Baptist minister's mouth. His colleague grabs him, takes him out to the fields and has him beaten up. You have others uh, from the Anglican church throwing hornet's nests into Baptist meeting houses and churches to disrupt the ceremonies. Something like half of the Baptist ministers in Virginia were arrested by the time of the American Revolution. 
So it was a horrifying wave of persecution, but its, its extra significance comes from the fact that it happened within a horse ride of James Madison's house. This was all happening around Montpelier, Virginia, where Madison lived. And so he came back from uh, College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, uh, stopped in Philadelphia and became enamored of all the freedom in Philadelphia, came down to Virginia and learned about these people uh, being imprisoned in the next county for publishing their religious sentiments. And a few years later, Madison was writing the, uh, the Declaration of Rights in Virginia, and a few years after that, he was involved in the fights over religious freedom. So it was a very real uh, and consequential thing that happened. Now, the Baptists, there were two things that were significant about the Baptists. One, obviously, is that he saw firsthand the persecution. And he saw that it wasn't just you know, the whip. It was also the law book. It was, it was mean, but it was also bureaucratic. They would grind down a religion by having paperwork, and you had to get a license for this, or you could only be eligible to preach in that meeting house, but not that meeting house. And there was a kind of state system that grew up to enforce, in effect, the, what the, was an established religion, which was the Church of England uh, in Virginia. He saw how debilitating that was, and he also heard the theology of the Baptist, which was for separation of church and state. They were articulating that idea before Madison or Jefferson were. And for them, it wasn't just a matter of avoiding persecution. It was also uh, a matter of strengthening their own relationship with God. They believed that, um, first of all, render unto Caesar what is his, and that the, separate, the, the realms should be separate. But more importantly, that uh, it was the nature of their faith that you could have a personal relationship with God and get best to get government, and for that matter, often clergy, out of the way uh, to do that. So this was sort of the milieu that Madison was learning about. He didn't have to learn about it from you know history books about Europe. He was seeing it in his own area. And so to give you a sense of how far uh, the country had come, things were a lot better than when, by the time of the constitutional period, than they were um, when the Quakers were being executed. But at 1776, the, this, this uh, peak moment of the spirit of liberation and freedom, nine of the 13 states banned Catholics and Jews from holding office. And, and those laws would persist for quite a while. Now, Madison um, had two critical ideas for how religious freedom could work well. The first is that the best way to encourage religion is to leave it alone, which may sound kind of obvious now, but that was actually a revolutionary thought back then. That wasn't the norm. For most of world history, the idea was if you want to encourage religion, government should get in there, pick a religion, put your tax dollars behind it, pay the ministers, and, and give it some muscle that way. And Madison, as well as Jefferson and others of that era, believed that there was a few thousand years of experience proving that that didn't work well. And they would often talk about what happened at the other colonies, but they would also talk about um, Constantine and, and the perversion of Christianity in their minds early on. And 
critically, he didn't just oppose efforts that uh, harassed religion. He also opposed efforts to help religion. We know this because there was this amazing fight in Virginia where that pitted Madison against Patrick Henry. And it was for a bill that would tax uh, the citizens and then use that money to help religion. It was, it was a very liberal bill. It didn't say, this was after the revolution, it didn't say we're going to use this money just to support the Anglican church. It said, well, so we're going to use it to support all churches, any one of them. And so that sense was very pluralistic. Madison was dead set against it because he thought government support of religion would uh, corrupt religion. It would make it lazy uh, and, and corrupt, and he fought it tooth and nail. The second theory that he had was uh, he said the real way to preserve religious freedom is not through what he called parchment barriers, which are sort of Jeffersonian declarations of rights, uh, which he was a little skeptical about. Uh, it, rather, it was what he called a multiplicity of sects, S-E-C-T-S. And what he meant by that in modern terms is essentially pluralism. He wanted there to be a lot of different Christian denominations which may sound counterintuitive, again, like we tend to think of splintering and fragmentation as a bad thing. He thought it was a great thing. And he basically thought that the more different denominations you had and the more different religions, the less likely it would be that one religion would get so strong that it could then crush or dominate another religion. So he really had this very market-oriented philosophy about, about religion. So uh, we get to the point of the, the First Amendment is, uh, is approved. Uh, significantly, it only addresses or only curtails the government's uh, approach to religion on the national government level. Madison wanted it to apply to the states, but he lost in that battle. So we, we go out into uh, the 1820s, 1820s, and it becomes a state-by-state -state battle as to whether or not the other states are going to follow the lead of the federal government. And Madison um, looks around, and he actually is sort of pleased with what's happening. He, he says, I think this is working out well. And his reason is interesting. He says, it's not just that there is uh, less persecution. He says, there's more religion. He looks around, and he refers excitedly to the amount of zeal that there is in the air. The zeal that he was referring to was what historians call the Second Great Awakening. It was a religious revival, and there was this interesting kind of virtuous circle that developed where you had these fights in the states over whether there should be state religions or what kind of state regulation of religion there should be at the same time that these religious revivals were happening. And, and it, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. The decline of these religious regulations made it possible for all these new religious movements to grow. And then those new religious movements in turn demanded more freedom which helped lead to the rest of the regulations collapsing. And they, that cycle kind of reinforced itself. Um, so it was, off to a, it was off to a good start. Um, but religious freedom was still really in the early stages. Remember that it was only just applying to the national government. Um, so one of the most egregious cases or, or examples of of this being tested involved uh, the Mormons. Uh, a uh, 1838 editorial in a Missouri newspaper kind of summarized the sentiment of uh, people then. 
saying their manners, the Mormons, their manners, customs, religion and all are more obnoxious to our citizens than those of the Indians and they can never live among us in peace. The rifle will settle this quarrel. And then in 1838, uh, the governor of Missouri did something that had never happened before or since. He issued a Missouri Executive Order 44 declaring that the Mormons, quote, must be exterminated or driven from the state for the public peace. So here we have the governor of Missouri calling for the extermination of the Mormons, uh, an order of genocide, and, if, and shortly thereafter, uh, we had one of the biggest religious massacres in American history, ha the Hans Mill Massacre. 250 Missourians, including state legislators and other um, uh, civic leaders, came to Hans Mill, a small Mormon community, uh, and lined up and opened fire on the community. Uh, the, the mob murdered 19 Mormons at Hans Mill. And most dramatically, they went into uh, a building where some of the people had been hiding during the massacre. And there was a kid there, I think a 12-year-old. And the, uh, one of the attackers went right up to him and blew his, blew his brains out. And his, one of his colleagues said, you know, that might have been excessive, what, uh, what you just did. Didn't, you know, do we have to really do that? And his response was, Nits make lice. This is a, a theme you'll hear coming back in other moments of religious history, that part of what happens when a, when a religious minority is targeted is they are dehumanized. They're turned into animals or insects. Um, another uh, significant source of conflict during this period was with Catholics. Um, in the 1830s, uh, there were riots in many cities, uh, Philadelphia Bible riots, uh, as they were called. Churches and convents were, were burned down. In Charleston, Massachusetts, in uh, 1835, the Ursuline convent was burned down uh, amid rumors that, there were the, that the nuns were kidnapping people. Uh, the, the, the famous uh, and very respected uh, Minister Lyman Beecher, who's the, the father of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, uh, was a leading anti-Catholic who warned that Catholics were dark-minded, vicious populace, a poor, uneducated, reckless mass of infuriated animalism, and that the church was working to destroy free institutions. Uh, a few days after his speeches, it was when the Ursuline convent was burned down, hundreds of men chanting down with the pope, down with the convent, uh, came and uh, attacked, destroyed Bibles, uh, ransacked sacraments, collected the teeth of deceased nuns in the crypt, and the fire department stood by outside watching the convent burn. Oftentimes, in these attacks on religious minorities, the minorities would be de depicted not just as an alien religion, but as ethnically alien. Uh, and uh, if you look at Thomas Nast cartoons of Irish Catholics in the 1870s, they're basically depicted as black. Um, 
if you listen to some of the descriptions of Mormons during that period, they're described as Asian. Um, a uh, 1860, a military doctor uh, in testimony before Congress said, the Mormons have a yellow, sunken, cadaverous visage. The greenish colored eyes, the thick protuberant lips, the low forehead, the light yellowish hair, and the lank angular person constitute an appearance so characteristic of the new race, the production of polygamy, as to distinguish them at a glance. Um, when we step back from this period and we see, you know, it, it, it can seem a, a bit depressing when you go through these cycles and these, these chapters of uh, elements of persecution and repression. But it, as you step back, there is progress being made. Uh, each of these fights, and, and very rarely are these fights led by famous uh, figures from American history. They're mostly led by regular Americans who are just uh, putting their lives and risks and reputations on the line for, uh, to, to fight for their freedom of, of faith. Uh, the case in the, in the case of the Catholic fights in Philadelphia, the Bible rights, the issue was that the Protestants in Philadelphia were insisting that the children be taught the Protestant, the King James Bible, Protestant translation. Catholics actually had no objection to teaching the Bible in the public schools. They just said, if we're going to do that, we should be allowed to have a Catholic uh, Bible. And the Protestants were basically saying, that's not a thing. The Catholic Bible isn't the Bible. The Bible is the King James Bible. And uh, eventually, what ended up happening after this fight uh, persisted for decades was that the schools actually had to embrace a more pluralistic approach to religion. Uh, so it, it eventually, as with the, the Quakers who protested, uh, as the, the Catholics who protested, and the Mormons, they did make they did advance, they did push it forward uh, and win increased religious freedom. In the case of Mormons uh, and in the case of Catholics, it often was not so much that uh, the rest of the world became woke about religious freedom, but that uh, these groups developed electoral power. Uh, I, I wish I could say it was the triumph of the, of the principle but really, in the case of Catholics and Mormons, it's that their numbers became significant, and they were able to fight back. In the case of Catholics, it was in American cities. In the case of Mormons, it happened that the period when the Mormons wanted to get statehood for Utah uh, coincided with this sort of shift of the balance of power to the West. There were all these new Western states, and it turned out that Mormons were not just in Utah. There were, there were significant Mormon settlements in half a dozen different areas out there. And suddenly, the Republicans who had been leading the charge to not just persecute, but, but literally uh, eliminate the religion of Mormonism flipped and said, OK, if you, if you denounce polygamy, we will accept you in to the union. Uh, now, what happens? There are other instances in American history where the groups that are being persecuted don't have this kind of clout. And uh, in, the, in the 19th century, the two that I wrote about were Native Americans and slaves. And, and they're often neglected or left out of the histories of religious freedom because they're, they're so subjugated and, and persecuted in other ways 
that the, the persecution of their religious beliefs is, is neglected. So in the case of Native Americans, what I focused on in this book was a really fascinating period after the Civil War when the, the good guys, the reformers, had taken the position that we should no longer be trying to exterminate Native Americans. The right thing to do would be to Christianize them, to convert them to Christianity. And this happened, you probably are familiar with the boarding schools where Native American children were often sent. Uh, a, a part of that that doesn't get talked about a lot is that one of the things that happened at the boarding schools was that they were, no Native American religions were allowed and they were basically taught Christianity. They were, they were converted. Um, with slaves, of course, the subjugation was even, even more total. But one of, the, one of the interesting things there is that um, if you go back to like the colonial period, there were probably more Muslims in America than there were Catholics or Jews. And that is because about 10 to 20% of the slaves were Muslim uh, that came from Muslim parts of Africa. Now, that religion was essentially purged. So the, not only were the African religions that, they, that the rest of the uh, Africans brought over with them when they were kidnapped, were those purged, but Islam was also purged, and just within a generation or two, they were gone. Um, and uh, there's, you know, mixed, there was, there was, depending on the era and the place, there were mixed views as to whether or not it was a good thing to teach the slaves Christianity because um, it would make a more righteous society, or it was a bad thing because you were teaching them how to read. And as you, after the Nat Turner Rebellion, the opinion coalesced around the idea that we should not allow even that kind of religious practice for slaves because it led to rebellion. So they clamped down even, even more. And of course, in that case, there wasn't a whole lot that they could do to advance the cause of religious freedom. But it did end up having an indirect effect on religious freedom because after the Civil War, there was the passage of the 14th Amendment, which was very much designed to uh, give religious freedom to African Americans, but it had, in the course of the full history, a really profound effect on religious freedom. That was, remember I said before that Madison lost in his desire to apply religious freedom to the state and local level? The 14th Amendment reversed that, and in effect said that the spirit of the First Amendment applies on local, uh, state and local matters. So that's why things like prayer in school and a crash on the city hall lawn and things like that are they're really local are actually cases that get brought to the Supreme Court. Um, and this, I, a lot of the examples I've given are from the 19th century, but this persists, the problems persist well into the 20th century. In the 1920s, you have the, revi the second revival of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, which was massive. It was, and it was I think a lot of people don't realize that the, the principal target of the KKK in the 1920s was Catholics. Uh, some of it took very bizarre forms. They were, as a kind of marketing matter, the KKK set up glee clubs all over the country. They would go and do singing at picnics. And a lot of the songs that they wrote were anti-Catholic ballads. There's, there's songbooks, KKK songbooks. One of them was, um, I looked at nine of the 10 songs in the book were anti-Catholic songs, and they, uh, like, to the, to the tune of Yes, We Have No Bananas, 
yes, we have no Catholics. They weren't that clever, but that you get the, you get the idea. Um, and this was uh, culminated in the, in the campaign of Al Smith in 1928, who was an Irish Catholic, and it really just brought out the full wave. It was kind of the crescendo of anti-Catholicism. Uh, the weirdest uh, bit of uh, fake news that went around was uh, around that time the Holland Tunnel had been built and they circulated a picture of the Holland Tunnel and said this was the tunnel through which the Pope was going to be traveling to the United States to come and run the country. Um, you were also struck when you read about the attacks on Catholics during that period how much of it sounds like some of the attacks on Muslims today. Um, in particular, it, we'll come back to this later, but you probably have heard about the fights over Sharia and whether or not you know that's a dangerous thing. Very, very similar to what was said about Catholics, their loyalty to the Pope and their loyalty to Catholic law, that they couldn't possibly be independent Americans because they have a, a loyalty to a foreign power. Uh, we, as we move through history, as we start to get to the 1940s, things start to change. Uh, one reason that they start to change for the better is the efforts of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, this is a, I don't know if you, you know members of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, but it's a small religion uh, in the United States that had a massive impact on the development of religious freedom. Uh, they were persecuted, unlike the Catholics and, and Mormons, who were able to fight back to some degree through their numbers. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses were too small to do that. Uh, so in their case, they had to try to enlist the courts. And it was really the first case of religious minority trying to persistently, massively use the courts to try to promote religious freedom. Uh, the persecution of the witnesses was really staggering. There were 18,000 arrests of Jehovah's Witnesses from 1933 to 1951, for uh, usually for the crime of refusing to salute the flag or to comply with military, uh, with the military draft. And it was a lot of it was it was mob violence. It wasn't so much the government doing this. In Litchfield, Illinois, uh, one very vivid scene of someone, uh, a witness who is in his car uh, with his materials dragged out of his car. They asked him if he would salute the flag, and he said no. So they thought the best way would to teach him would be to take an American flag and drape it over the front of his car and then smash his head against the hood uh, and then ask again, will you salute the flag now? And he said no and then they smashed it again and this went on for about 15 minutes and he was almost killed. And this was, things like this were happening all over the country, uh, especially in the World War II period. Uh, but World War II is also significant for another reason. Uh, World War II is when the country kind of pivots toward embracing religious freedom in a more powerful way. And on this front, there, you know, the, the presidents of the war period, Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower deserve a lot of credit. They were the ones who decided that uh, we're fighting fascists 
and we need to create a point of comparison and unity. And being a Christian country doesn't do it when you're fighting Germany. Uh, so they, they decided that the unifying theme was religious freedom, or one of them was. It's, it was very significant that when Roosevelt did the Four Freedoms, one of them was freedom of conscience. Around that same time, there was a kind of grassroots movement that was happening uh, where there were these things called tolerance trio, trios. It was basically these, this, this informal movement that had sprung up that would where, in which a, a rabbi, a minister, and a priest would get together and go around uh, to military bases, to communities, thousands and thousands of times. These tolerance trios would make the rounds. And I know that this must have been the period when the rabbi, priest, and minister walk into a bar joke was invented. I could not find the bar uh, where it was invented, but uh, this notion of the tri-faith America with these uh, different religions all under the same roof started to really catch hold. There was one very poignant thing, whereas in 19, I think in 42, there was a, uh, a ship, a transport ship called the Dorchester. And it was carrying troops over to Greenland and it was torpedoed and started to sink. And the four, there were the four clergy on there, the four chaplains, um, went up on the ship's deck and performed heroically and basically gave away their, their life preservers so other people could uh, survive. And uh, they were, according to the witnesses survived, stayed on the boat and were seen praying as the ship was going down. And this led to, uh, they, they actually issued a postage stamp very soon after this, so very unusual. Uh, and it said, uh, interfaith in action was what it said on the, on the stamp. And Truman, when he kind of inaugurated it, said this was the most eloquent sermon of religious freedom that we've ever had. Uh, and after the war was over, the fight then turned to uh, combating communism. So again, uh, it became a unifying theme to have religious freedom. And you could see it, the 50s was this weird moment when it was when, that was when you had in God we trust go on the paper currency, that was when we had under God go into the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, it was a very, it was sort of soaked with religion in a, uh, it, what's called public religion, meaning the politicians were talking about religion all the time and they were putting religious phrasing in public documents and places. But Eisenhower was very careful about one thing, which is he was very in favor of having more public religion, but he did it in this very overtly um, pluralistic way. He said, our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith. And I don't care what it is. With us, of course, it is the Judeo-Christian concept. That's the first time a president used the phrase Judeo-Christian. But it must be a religion that all men are created equal. And some people mocked this odd formulation that he had. One critic said that Eisenhower seemed to be a very fervent believer in a very vague religion. Uh, but he was onto something. He knew that if you were going to push the envelope in terms of public piety, you had to couple it with an equally aggressive assertion of pluralism as the context for doing it. 
Over the next few decades, the Supreme Court essentially caught up and became an important force in expanding religious liberty. Notice that we've gotten all the way to the 40s before I've mentioned the word the Supreme Court, the phrase Supreme Court. We tend to think of religious liberty and the history of religious liberty being one about constitutional law. It's really not. At least in the last 50 years, it often is. But most of the history of religious freedom really was uh, evolved outside of the jurisdiction of the US Supreme Court until around the 1940s and really accelerating into the 1960s. Um, after the World War II period, I'm not gonna go through every, every decade, but essentially I think the most important thing that happened, you had the gradual integration of Catholics into American life, you had uh, the decline in antagonism between conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants, partly as a result, ironically, of the rise of the religious right. Uh, so uh, conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants who would not talk to each other pr previously could now get together in their shared hatred of secularism or liberalism or their support of, uh, of uh, or opposition to abortion. The other thing that happened was immigration laws changed. One of the things you find in this history is that one of the most important factors in creating both the conflict and the resolution around religious freedom is immigration. Catholics, Jews, Mormons, uh, they, they were afraid, of the, 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 the language is really kind of amazing when you listen, you read the stuff about uh, the fear that there are these kind of very uh, low rent people pouring over the porous border the low rent people being the Mormons and the border being Canada. Uh, with with uh, Catholics, it was uh, Samuel Morse, who was the inventor of the Morse code and uh, partly the telegraph, big anti-Catholic crusader back then, has these incredible speeches where he says, up, up, shut our gates, build more walls so that we can stop these immigrants who are gonna destroy our country, the immigrants being Irish Catholics. Um, so eventually you get to the point where you, through civil disobedience, electoral power, and then court rulings, starting in the 50s and then accelerating into the, through the 60s and 70s, you start to have a really robust form of religious freedom. And by the way, that includes not only a lack of persecution um, it includes some other ideas. It, it's, I sometimes we tend to think of it as being separation of church and state, and that's an, that's an element, but that's, that doesn't get us all the way there to describe the American model. Uh, it certainly is that. It is also that the government shouldn't favor one religion over another, whether to hurt or help, that religious should be able to basically govern their own affairs, and then in recent years, a new element was added, which is that the government should, and society should bend over backwards to accommodate the religious behavior if it's when they conflict with secular laws. So the famous example of this that kind of broke through uh, in the Supreme Court was involved a Seventh-day Adventist, a woman who was uh, fired because she wouldn't work on Saturday and tried to collect unemployment benefits, and the state, South Carolina, said no, you know, you, there's no law that says you should be exempt from if you happen to think your Sabbath is on Saturday instead of Sunday. And the court basically said, 
actually for religious freedom to be meaningful, we have to bend over backwards and accommodate things like this. That the state has to have a compelling reason to force someone to have to choose between their faith and the law. So they said, actually, this person should get unemployment benefits because her religion said that the Sabbath was on Saturday. This concept is why, flashing forward today, we have issues uh, like the bakers of conscience, you know, the people who, who don't want to bake cakes for same-sex marriage, or Catholics not wanting in, in hospital, not wanting to be involved in contraception, or to use an older example, Quakers not wanting to be conscripted in the military. So there's this, there are numerous cases where we as a society say, actually we think people should be allowed to be exempted from secular laws if it's a religious reason. And, and in that sense, religion is really privileged over other excuses. You know, you can, uh, the, the woman who was able to win the case about being able to, not wanting to work on Saturday, if she had said, I want to go and visit my mom in the nursing home on Saturday, that would not be a legitimate excuse. But if I want to worship on my, uh, my Sabbath on Saturday, that is a legitimate excuse. Religious practice and behavior is on another level, is privileged in, in American society in a way that it is not in other countries, which is, I think, a good thing, you know, there, it, there's definitely complexities to it. It raises all sorts of tough dilemmas, but I think that's part of what gives the American model its robustness. And it, the American model, to get to the good news, um, really is, I, I, I almost named this book um, America's Greatest Invention. Um, I decided it wasn't really an invention. It probably wasn't only in America, and it might not have been the greatest. So decided that wasn't the best title. But the idea really is, if you compare America today uh, in modern America to both previous eras in America, but more importantly, world history, and I mean thousands of years, societies have been struggling to balance freedom and religion uh, with almost always horrible results. The government usually embraces a particular faith. It has short-term benefits for that religion, uh, but it usually ends up with other people being persecuted, with the religion becoming corrupt, and on and on it goes. And meanwhile, that's what's happening in most of the rest of the world today. There's just a report that came out a couple weeks ago that said 80% of the people in the world today live in societies without religious freedom, 80%. So we should feel very proud of what we've achieved here. We should feel very grateful of the blood and sacrifice that our ancestors and this very courageous people uh, spilled in order to get us this freedom. And it took a long, long time. And we should be alarmed right now at the danger that religious freedom is in right now. And there's, I, in the book, I, I refer to three small threats and one big threat. I'll put aside the three small ones for now. We can talk about it uh, in a bit if you want. The big one is the um, attack on American Muslims. Uh, you, we have had many, many instances of um, <clears throat> attacks on different religious groups. We, we have never had a successful presidential candidate call for the banning of a particular religion. Um, we have never had calling for a that the people in a certain religion should be registered in a special database. In 2015, a poll came out that said only half of Republicans said uh, that Islam 
were willing to say that Islam should be legal in America. So the foundations of um, uh, the principles of religious freedom have been, are, are, are fragile. The consensus around what religious freedom means is not as universal as, as we thought. In scores of communities around the country, mosques uh, have, have um, rejected um, applications for the construction of mosques. Uh, social media has been a big part of this as well as, as uh, traditional media in spreading um, anti-Muslim uh, sentiment of a very extreme sort. And I do fear that the, the sort of foundations of religious freedom look solid, but that they've been soaked with gasoline and that uh, the next time there is a real spark, um, I fear for how strong, how strong that foundation is going to be. So there are other issues with religious freedom in modern times that I, uh, I want to talk about. American Christians often feel that, that their religious freedom is being infringed. My take on that in the book is that their concerns are exaggerated but not fabricated, that there are some legitimate concerns that really need attention. Um, and mostly I feel like this really is one of the greatest achievements in American history uh, and it was purchased with such struggle and sacrifice that it would be tragic if we lost our ability to model this for the rest of the world. And by not understanding what religious freedom is and how we got it, we could end up squandering it. So why don't I stop there and we can have a conversation. Thank you. All right, like usual, we're going to open this up for a Q&A. There's uh, one of me and I believe like 30 plus of you. So be patient with me as I run around, but here's the mic, so. Just thinking of the psychology behind all these repressions of this group and that group, does a lot of it boil down to tribalism and you're changing our culture, we like the culture the way it is, and these outsiders are coming in and trying to change us against our will? I think it does. A lot of it does relate to, to tribalism. Tribalism can have different facets. Sometimes it's ethnic, sometimes it's religious, sometimes it's cultural, um, but it is always something. And sometimes it's more practical than that. Some of the people in Missouri, for instance, thought the Mormons were gonna become the majority and take away their land. Um, and in the case of Catholics, they thought that they were going to become so numerous that they would um, literally, you know, vote to ban the Bible. Most, a lot of it was, you know, fictitious, but the fears were uh, manifest in the form of these very odd, concrete things. But I think a lot of it is tribal. And, and when you add to that, when you think about it, this idea of religious freedom and coming to accept or respect people of other faiths is really hard. You know, it actually kind of in some ways cuts against the nature of religion. You know, it's, it's easy for, for me to say everyone should be respectful of other religions, but if you have found the truth and believe that someone else's religion is not just wrong but dangerous and consigning millions of people's souls to eternal torment and destroying society, you feel obligated to fight it. So it's particularly that, that kind of tribal or that group in group out group phenomenon becomes particularly potent when the topic is religious.
think my question is very similar. Looking at the psychology of the persecutors, particularly the, the leaders uh, of persecution, what is your sense of how much of that is because they truly believe that um, their religion is correct and that God wants them to do this as opposed to those who see a real use of religion uh, to get their political uh, objectives or to get their economic objectives or to get rid of the people who are a threat in some way? That's a great question. I think for most of American history, it was more the former. Uh, now, I, I suppose you could make a distinction between sort of grassroots uh, activists and religious people who I think really would answer, would choose the first option, that this is, uh, these folks are just religiously dangerous and wrong. Back then, as now, there are politicians who see that as an opportunity and make alliances without necessarily having full belief in the, in the theology that goes along with it. Uh, but I think that there was this, there, there really was this sense that the, the others were dangerous. And by the way, it's sort of the nature of the majority kind of kept changing. Like in, in uh, the colonial period, when people would talk about, Christ well, they wouldn't use the phrase Christian America, but when they would talk about the, the majority religion, this is an American, you know, the, the religion of the majority should be the pervasive religion. What they were talking about was Episcopalianism and Congregationalism, which now represents 1.7% of the population. So the, the majority back then is now a very small percentage of the population. In fact, in that sense, you could say we're not only just a nation of immigrants, we're also a nation of religious minorities, almost all of whom have had a turn being persecuted. Um, and the, uh, so you started off saying the, the majority is Episcopalians. Well, the Baptists didn't like that. Uh, and eventually it expanded out to the majority is Protestant. And the Catholics didn't like that. And so eventually it was expanded out to say, well, we're a Christian nation. By the way, one thing that you know, I always say when people talk about, was the country founded as a Christian nation? I was like, I don't think the Catholics viewed it that way in the, in the 19th century. There may be arguments around the terminology, but if, if the country was founded as an anything nation, it was as a Protestant nation, not as a Christian nation. But in any event, you then it expanded out to be where the majority is Christian. And then by the time you get to the World War II, it's the majority is Judeo-Christian. So it just keeps, it keeps uh, the, the coalitions keep shifting in order to reestablish a majority. So when the majority gets too small and is no longer the majority, it pulls some others in to try to create the majority and make someone else the, uh, the minority. Have, have you given any thought to um, the difference between freedom of religion and freedom of conscience? and how those two issues play out and confusion between those issues? That's the question my wife always asks me. She says, why do you keep using freedom of religion instead of freedom of conscience? And I, I don't really have a good answer to the question for her, as with most questions from her. Um, I think that to some degree, it's a matter of terminology, that freedom of conscience um, was the term that was used earlier on um, and in some ways, it was a little more expansive than, than freedom of religion because it included free thinkers and it, it was a more, exp and that was a reflection of you know, the era, uh, Jefferson and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin and, and the Enlightenment. Um, 
So I think freedom of conscience is a little bit, you know, is probably, I don't use freedom of conscience now because I'm not sure people would know what it meant in the modern times, but it's, it's in, in some ways it's a better phrase because to understand religious freedom, it doesn't just apply to people who go to church. You know, America, I think about 40%, 40, 45% of Americans go to church, but 90% of Americans pray regularly. So the, the probably the most common form of spiritual practice is not going to church, but staying home and praying. Um, that's freedom of conscience. Um, people who are non-believers, you know, the, the freedom to, our American model that gives us the freedom to believe also gives us the freedom not to believe. And for that reason, atheists have more freedom in America than they do in many other countries. So I think the really, the, the, the more um, robust way to look at it is more like what they meant with the term conscience. So arguably, the, the greatest segment of the population and certainly the most robustly growing segment of the population are non-believers. And so how does that affect your uh, ideas of religious liberty and the power that goes with that? It's a great question. You know, we have uh, the... the, the, the Largest group demographically now is what they're calling the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Now, the nuns are not the same thing as atheists and agnostics. Nuns include atheists, agnostics, but also people who are religious but not affiliated with a church. So it's actually a very, very broad group. So it's a little misleading. That we shouldn't think that you know 25% of society is secular because 25% is nuns. But it is still a, a growing percentage of people that are unaffiliated with religion and in some cases hostile. I think the figure I thought was something like 12 to 15% of Americans think religion does more harm than good. 12%. That means that's a bigger number than Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus combined to give you a sense of the, the size of that group. So it raises really interesting questions because if you look, if you play the game of you know what did the founders what would the founders want, and it depends which founder you're thinking about. Like but just rule of thumb, like if anyone say if if you hear anyone say the founding fathers believed blah blah blah, the blah 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 part is wrong. Whatever it is, it's wrong because the founding fathers were not a unified group. They disagreed on on all sorts of things, including this. Most amazing thing is, you had four of the key figures in religious freedom: Washington. Adams, Jefferson, and Madison got to be president in sequence. So they actually got to try out these concepts. And it turns out they disagreed with each other in real time, in the years after the First Amendment was passed. Jefferson looked at Washington. Washington had prayer proclamations. Uh, and Adams had prayer proclamations, and Jefferson said, that's against the First Amendment. Imagine sort of lecturing George Washington about what's in the First Amendment. And Madison agreed. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that the one thing that is pretty close to a full consensus among the founding fathers is that religion is good for America. They tended to think they had different views about how you would guarantee that, how you would have religious vibrancy. Uh, and Madison you know, thought that the best way to have a religiously vibrant community was to have separation of church and state. 
Others thought you should have the government, but they tended to agree that it was important to have a lot of religion because they thought this is, a, we're trying this experiment with a, of a republic that involves some pretty responsible behavior on the part of ordinary citizens. And to make those kinds of weighty judgments, they need moral guidance. And so they really did. So I think a lot of the, I think the founders would be kind of puzzled and scratch their heads as to what to do about uh, non-believers. My, my tendency is to believe that, you know, we're at the point where the, the um, we have to pretty much embrace a pluralistic model, meaning uh, if we are going to allow a priest to open the House of Representatives with the prayer, we have to allow a rabbi or a imam. And that is fine for all the folks who are believers, but it still rubs the wrong way the people who are not believers. Like, why, why are we left out of this equation? And, uh, you know, I don't really have a good answer to that other than that the, the system that gives this kind of pluralism does give a lot more leeway to non-believers too. And everyone has to basically put up with having some stuff in their face that they don't like. That's the nature of religious freedom. You just go, you drive past the city hall and there's gonna be a, a, a religious uh, you know, exhibit that doesn't represent my religion. And if you're a non-believer, it doesn't re represent my worldview. And I think they have to, they have to basically accept that notion too, uh, just as society has to accept the notion that they are equal citizens as well. So that's the newest, that's the latest part of the grand bargain that has to be cemented. So we probably have time for one more question. Uh, yes, you, so you spoke of the greatest danger, that is the persecution against um, Islam. What do you think is the solution to that? Well, I have a fantasy. Um, my fantasy is that uh, I said earlier that there's no group that did more to advance religious freedom in American history than evangelical Christians. That was true largely because of the Baptists and the influence they had on James Madison. It was true because of the evangelical revivals in the 1820s and how that wiped out the religious regulations, and there are some other episodes that I talk about in this. Um, the most powerful thing that could happen would be for 21st century evangelicals to hear the voices of 18th century evangelicals and 19th century evangelicals and really come to understand what their arguments were and get back on the right side of history and lead the charge in defending American Muslims, which is not happening now. And oftentimes, it's the other way around. They're very much part of the attack. Uh, in general, uh, there needs to be kind of a all for one, one for all attitude among religions that, as you said in the very beginning, it's not really religious freedom when you're just talking about your own religion. It only, it only uh, strengthens and grows if you're protecting the concept as a whole. And there are some really encouraging signs about that. You know, the, um, when uh, Trump announced during the campaign that they were gonna have a registry where he was gonna propose that all American Muslims be registered in a special registry. Uh, the head of the Anti-Defamation League, the group which for decades has been about fighting anti-Semitism, and by the way, a group that has spent many, many decades fighting with Muslims uh, and defending Israel against attacks from Muslim countries, 
uh, stood up and said, if, if there is a registry for American Muslims, on that day, I will register as a Muslim. And I think that is the kind of powerful statement that religious leaders need to, to make uh, to, def to see their own plight in the plight of uh, other religions. Uh, it happened also a little bit when the Muslim ban was proposed and thousands of people went to airports to, uh, to, to fight against it. So I think there's, there is some hope of that. But I also, I, this is going to be, a, may sound like a weird, a weird um, slightly out of the left field um, addition of this, which is, as I've been talking about this book, most of the requests I get for interviews and most of the reviews I've gotten come from conservative radio and conservative publications. And it's been very respectful um, and great conversations. The progressive press, the progressive radio has no apparent interest in this topic. Um, and I think that's a real problem because it's it, not that they're hostile to religious freedom. It's just I think on some level liberals think well that's a top that's owned by the conservatives now, so we're not going to pay any attention to it. So I think one of the things that has to happen is that liberals have to start paying attention to religious freedom in all its dimensions, uh, including defending Muslims and including understanding better what some of the legitimate concerns that that conservative Christians have. Uh, we didn't get to talk about that. That's like a whole hour by itself. Um, but we can maybe we can talk about that. Sir, can I I'm happy to uh, do that if you. Yeah, one more. <laughs> Just one. Is it about that topic? It's about uh, half a dozen topics. So I'm not going oh, to ask getting... all those questions. But I would like you to inform the audience about the Leaf Connect. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, BeliefNet was a website that I, I co-founded in 1999. Uh, and it was a multi-faith religion website. And it became the largest religion website on the, uh, on the web. And I'm not affiliated with it anymore, uh, though it still exists. Um, I don't know if anyone has looked at it. Right? Um, so the, the idea was kind of a community and a magazine. And it was a wonderful experiment. And by the way, very influenced, very much influenced my approach to this because we were always very careful. We didn't describe ourselves as an interfaith site. We called ourselves a multi-faith site. And it was really based on the idea that uh, for religious dialogue to, to thrive, it can't be about either creating a common denominator religion. It has to be about letting people find the path that is, is robust for themselves, and that in that context, people will learn to understand each other better. Awesome, I think it's an awesome place to end. Uh, can we get Thank one you. last round of applause for our speaker? You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.